0: it's the Marshall Erickson Pipeline.
1: Welcome back to the In-Laws podcast. I'm Sophia. And I'm Brienne. We're two law students who created this podcast to talk about law school, law talk, and everything in between. Also make sure to follow us on Instagram at the In-Laws pod. Today we have a special guest, Rolly, who's a 1L at Tulane Law School, who's also known as the Phil Pino on TikTok and Instagram. We'll add that to the Bio of the episode. So, if he wants to introduce himself.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Roli. I am, as they said, a one out Tulane. And I am one of the younger people in my classes. I'm what they call a K through JD. Um, so, I'm really excited to be on this pod and talk about my experiences in law school.
0: Thank you for coming.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: So, today we wanted to discuss what we're calling the Big Law Pipeline. Okay. Um, And we wanted to have Rolly on to give the perspective of a 1L because Soph is a 2L and I am a 3L. And I think your perspectives on that pipeline change throughout law school. So it's really nice to get a bunch of different perspectives from different grades. What what would you even call them in law school? I think I just say classes,
1: like what class you're in.
0: Um, And then, of course, different schools. We're all at different schools. So before we get into it, what is big law?
1: I mean, I didn't know what big law was until I got to law school and also heard about it on TikTok. I think I mostly learned what it was from TikTok. And from what I've gathered since then, it's essentially like the top 100, 200, like biggest law firms in the country. Um, there's like discrepancies on what the cutoff is for the amount of attorneys. But in my mind, it's like the the law firms that have like New York City, Chicago, LA offices, like firms that have offices in like all of the major cities is like what I think about and like corporate type of work, I'd say.
0: Yeah, so I think that points out the interesting distinction between big law for employment statistics and big law in how it's viewed in everyday life, because for employment statistics, Anything that has over a hundred attorneys is considered big law. If you were to go to New York and tell like someone at Krebath, oh yeah, I did big law and you worked like at a firm with 104 attorneys in, I don't know, Mississippi, they'd be like, no, that's not big law. Because it is. Inherently tied to prestige and elitism, obviously, Mm -hmm. and capitalism. Let's just throw them all in there.
1: Yeah, all Visms on this one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I think the more common cutoff to use is probably 500 attorneys, but there's also, like you said, different rankings. There's the Amlaw 200, the Amlaw 100, which is just based on revenue, I believe and then there is the vault 100 which is based on much more what that is actually based on no idea
1: okay. really what do you what do you think of big law and what did you think it was when you came into law school slash got to law school yeah
2: so when i was a zero like preparing for law school like i was seeing all like these videos and i as part of your videos as well. So, so. <laughs> and I still don't know what Big Law is but before going to law school. I, I thought it was just like this thing where like people go to like events and drink and eat. I don't really know what they did until like I got to law school and went to some networking events and oh, they actually do stuff.
0: I think that's a common thread where none of us knew what Big Law was before mm-hmm. we started law school. Yeah. the thing is I I had heard of the magic circle in the UK, which I believe is like an equivalent term. <laughs> what? Oh, because I followed this girl who was in law school in the UK. I'm blanking on her name. Um, but she like worked she got hired at a magic circle firm, and I was like, What the fuck is this? I'm so glad that the US doesn't have this because that feels very high pressure um jokes on me
1: that feels very like Harvard club like shit it it really does I think something that I thought about um summer associateships was everybody was warning me like they're gonna be like courting you whining and dining blah 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 some people were saying like at the really big firms like you're you're not really doing substantial work When we got in there, we got our projects immediately. We were working the whole summer. Yeah, we had to do like lunches with attorneys. We had to do um, mixers and like team events, but we were working every single day. We had stuff going on. So I don't know about those people, (laughs) but we were working.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the same for me at my firm. But I do know and have heard from students at other firms that they really were setting up Zoom calls and doing very much not legal work. Um,
1: Right, like executive assistant work.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, taking notes in meetings, setting up meetings, making phone calls, like just things that you definitely don't need to be a rising 3L at a major law firm to do. right? And I think that probably the higher ranked the law firm, because some of those law firms have a ton of summer associates. Like they really do have dozens and dozens of summer associates. My firm, our office had three. Wow. Yeah, very small. Um, and I think that's why we get to do so much substantial work because, you know, we have six, 700 attorneys um, Throughout the offices, and I think there was fourteen or fifteen summer associates throughout the offices. Oh
1: wow, ours wow. was eleven. We had eleven
0: in your office? No,
1: like spread out.
0: Oh okay. I was like, whoa, that's a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely i was i was writing motions. I was doing research. I was not setting up Zoom calls.
1: So really for you, kind of back to like why you're in law school slash what you sort of came in for, and then on top of that, has what you want to do changed?
2: Oh, definitely. I think I came into law school to do public interest environmental work, so I wanted to do environmental law. I think I still want to do that in the future, but definitely like looking into different fellowships and internships that I, that is available to me as one-off for the summer has really changed my perceptions of like what I want to do for my one off summer. I was looking at different job listings that my school offered me and they were unpaid. And I was like, oh no, I am not doing that. So like, and I went to a lot of like big law events. We had one with um, a big regional firm here in the South. Um, They also have firms in New York and DC, I believe, but um, they're really heavy on the South. And their interns paid a lot. And I was like, I I want to do that, and they have like an energy practice that I wanted to go uh, look into. It's like maybe that's what I want to do. So, yeah, so I feel like big law compensation is really a pull for a lot of students like that are like me like want to decrease our debt. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think my because of big law like my plans have changed overall.
0: It's the Marshall Erickson pipeline. <laughs> Um, I think that happens to a lot of students. I think, well, I mean, I came into law school knowing that if I was going to do public interest stuff, I would not get paid. Um, that was something I did know. So when everything was posted and my public defense internship was like, you're getting $0, I wasn't that surprised. But it still did suck a lot.
2: Yeah, okay. like maybe like I could, I'll do like a unpaid stuff during the school year, but I feel like if it's summer like you have rent to pay for, you have groceries to pay for, and that's not really part of your t- your cost of attendance that you get for for your living expenses, and I feel like that's also a factor that a lot of like one alls are considering right now.
1: Right. Does your school do any type of stipend in the summer? We have something that runs through like our office of public interest, but not through like the actual school if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, so our school didn't have, like, a grant program. Instead, we have the Public Interest Law Foundation, which is a student-run organization. Mm-hmm. But because, like, a lot of that funding comes from, like, student dues and, like, fundraising events, it's not enough to help you, like, leave for rent over the summer. And that's, like, three months of rent. Um, but it does help a little bit. But, yeah, it's not, an. it's, like, it's limited to a lot of, like, students. And... How much you get depends on how many students apply for that grant in a given summer.
0: That's interesting. So UNC does have a public interest summer grant. It's not based on any student dues or anything. It's completely fundraised. We have a public interest law organization that raises a very large amount of money every year. Thank you to the, the alumni, because they're really putting <laughs> us through. Also, we have a lot of firms that donate to it, you know, good Samaritan firm behavior. Um, but even with that, the max amount you can get is $3,000. That's less
1: than here. Oh my yeah. God.
0: It's not enough, especially with, I mean, a lot of the time you're relocating because while we are close to, you know, a major city, most of the, the public interest work you can do is in other cities. So I would, if I were going to relocate, I did the math for it. And I think I would have had to take out an extra six or $7,000 in loans because I'd have to pay my rent here and my rent in the new city. You know, no one's looking for a sublet in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's not enough money to survive off of, which puts a lot of pressure on people to go into private work.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, even my roommate who came into school and was like dead set on public interest, like really doubted herself during OCI season of 1L because- obviously everybody that we knew was like putting in bids for stuff and she just like didn't know what to apply for didn't know like if she could handle it because it's that situation where it's either you try and get this like stipend this grant and if you don't get it you have to rely on loans or get another job on top of like this job that's already going to be like 35 40 hours like it just eats your time and eats your money (laughs)
0: So let's just talk about OCIs and the schedule of how it differs (laughs) for big law and public interest stuff because that is not something anyone told me. Mm -hmm. And I was screaming, crying, throwing up my 1L year.
1: It's intense and like right away.
0: Yeah. So at my school, what happens is all of the big law stuff kind of gets posted over winter break, like over Christmas time maybe some earlier i was not paying attention um and then when you get back for spring semester which for us starts like the second week of january people are coming to class with suits on like everyone's talking about where they're interviewing and for me i was like oh like there hasn't even been a job posted that i'd consider applying to and it freaked me out and i ended up applying to some private places that I didn't want to work at I had no interest in because I just felt that pressure that oh maybe nothing I'm interested in will ever get posted yeah
1: ours like I mean our career services kind of told us like don't worry about it until after finals but like keep your resume updated type of situation because it really won't matter until grades kind of drop Um, and we go back to school around the same time so like everybody came back to school and everybody was just like freaking out about jobs. And obviously when it's OCIs, it's on-campus interviews. So you see people leaving class, you see people coming into class late, like you can see the, you know, the conference rooms that people are in interviewing and they post the names outside. So like if you're interviewing for a place, you can see everybody else that you're essentially competing with to get this job. And I remember during that time, Because I, my situation was just like weird with my job because like my school nominated me and then I did like OCIs before school started so it was like this weird situation. So I already had a job going into like second semester when everybody was doing OCIs and I remember just thinking like if I had to do what I did before school while everybody else was, i would be freaking
0: out. The, the name list outside drives me insane. Why do you need that? Okay. We also get the name list um on our OCI platform. Like you can see who else. Yeah. Oh. oh my god.
1: What have you heard so far about OCIs, really?
2: Um, yeah, so we have like this kind of class that we meet like every two weeks. We call it becoming lawyers, and especially it's kind of like they should do, like Things about the law schools, like we learn how to outline on the first class, and then this past two sessions, we learned how to write a resume, write a cover letter, how to reach out to firms, and that kind of thing. So there's really that big emphasis on big law, even for a tier two school like mine. So we're ranked fifty five in the country, which is like not even like it's a good ranking for a law school, but it's not like you know a big law magnet kind of law school. And this past semester, we have a lot of networking events. Um, so. Last, the two weeks before um, break, we had this networking event with Vincent and Elkins that has um, kind of presence in D.C., New York, but also Dallas and Houston. So really fun event. I It was just really hard to kind of network and speak in this loud voice that attorneys can hear you. You have like 200 people around like 10 attorneys and it's just difficult. And um after a break, we have another networking event, with a different firm. Um, so this, that big kind of push for big law, even for a school in like the mid rankings.
0: Yeah, I, UNC also has a class like that. It's called Transition to the Profession for us. Um, but it is run by our pro bono director. So we did not get big law pushed to us at all. Which is so interesting i didn't even consider that would be a factor at other schools
2: yeah i just think there's a lot more push now like um we have like a required like one-to-one meeting with our career advisor so we have been split off into like by last name and by interest so like whether you, you will work with one out of four counselors and we have to meet with them talk about our resumes after break and i feel like that's really i feel like a good step um i just need to make sure like what it is that I want to do actually, because I feel like they're starting really early and we haven't really finished a semester of law school and having to decide if we want to go to big law or public interest,
1: mm-hmm. that's
2: a tough decision to make, especially for one on.
1: Yeah, I think that's the hard part of the big law pipeline is everything about it is so immediate. The big law things are always first. So it's like, if you even want a chance to do it, you sort of have to commit immediately. As yeah, first. it's
2: scary because like a lot of the one like diversity positions are opening up next month, and I'm I just got emails from like different firms like Hey, you should apply." I'm like,
0: "It's <laughs> November, it's October." You should apply to my firm. Come, come <laughs> to New York City with me. I'm trying to go recruit people because I'm not. <laughs> I don't know if I can do the New York girlies, <laughs> um, but I think that pressure from people in the career development office is real at my school one else gets split up between a few different advisors pretty randomly and I happened to get put with the public interest one so I was fine but we have a guy who is very centered on big law and we had public interest students who were sent to him and he was like actively trying to get them to go into big law instead of public interest Which I'm particularly surprised. I'm not surprised. And I think it's just because people who work at the school, especially in that kind of position, they're very focused on the rankings, especially like UNC is recovering from a little something that caused us to drop in the rankings, um, which just requires so much institutional knowledge of North Carolina politics that I'm not going to get into. Um, It really does. But since I've been making this huge push, I think how many people you send into big law, that's part of the employment statistics you release as a school. It impacts what students want to come to you as a school, and it can impact your reputation, which is taken into account in the rankings. So it's not surprising to me, but it's so shitty to just from the jump be like, hey, you might want to consider big law instead.
1: Literally. There have been some instances with our career services and honestly attorneys um, at Mixers who come in and if you say like you for sure want to do public interest or you're somebody who like wants to be a public defender, like they will just kind of walk away. Like, they immediately are no longer interested in the conversation. It's happened to my roommates, some of my friends, like, on multiple occasions where they'll say, like, oh, I want to do, like, governmental work, I want to do public defense, and they're like, okay, bye. And my school has only a few career counselors, I believe, and you have to meet with them to get your resume approved, to even upload to do any type of OCI or interview, so if you're doing big law, you have to get it approved by them. And they're going to be, they're going to be harsh. <laughs> they're they're going to critique you heavy. And so like they have to give the go for you to upload your resume because they will go in and manually approve it. But even for like the public interest people, they're just like so hardcore. And I know of a few stories of people who have taken their resumes in and been white people. And our career services will literally tell them like your GBA would be competitive if you were a person of color, but since you're not like good luck with big law.
0: Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. So <laughs> I think there's truth to the fact that a lot of big law positions between 1L and 2L are LDLC mm-hmm. positions, which is as it should be, you know? Um, but there's, that seems a little far. Yeah and also (laughs) I
1: mean for the for the law legal scene here it's not accurate at all for like who actually gets hired.
0: Oh yeah well let's talk about who actually gets hired into diversity positions because why are there white people getting hired into diversity positions? It's
1: because
0: they're counting um
1: one thing that people do count here is like socioeconomic class. So like you can apply to diversity positions here. Um, but people have different opinions about that. Like one of our career counselors says like, you can't do that. And the other one is like, yeah. <laughs> oh, also if you're a woman, they count that too. Just like oh, in general.
0: You're joking. No, I'm serious. <laughs> Wealthy white women can apply for diversity positions. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, as someone who is white and grew up in poverty, I never felt comfortable applying for diversity positions. I always felt like they weren't intended for me. (laughs) And then I met some people who were white and applying for those positions on account of socioeconomic status. And they just weren't poor. Like they just weren't. They were talking about their parents paying for their college tuition. They were talking about going on international vacations. And I was like, whoa, like you really shouldn't be applying for this.
1: Yeah. Like once, once the status change, once the status changes, babe.
0: (laughs) Well, I just, yeah, I'm just very confused by it generally because like, what am I going to do? Submit proof of like my parents' W-2s? How are they judging
1: that? Right. I think that kind of goes into the thing that we were talking about last week, where people pretend to be, like, poorer or less fortunate than they actually are, or just, like, flip-flopping their identity. Have you experienced any of that, really?
2: Oh, yeah. And I think, like, these are the same people who, like, go out to, like, a really expensive bar in New Orleans, at like, on Thursday night. And I'm like, uh, you just said you were broke, like, last weekend. When you hanged out, it's like, oh?
1: <laughs> like, what's, what's going on here?
2: Yeah, there's definitely like a lot of like wealth signaling, especially in my law school because law, I'm less like, yeah, most of us are in scholarship, but it doesn't like take away from the fact that you are rich.
1: Yeah. yep, Especially if your parents are still supporting you, like supported you then and are still supporting you like that. Mm
0: Hmm. Yeah.
1: I don't know. Like, there are some people here who, I mean, God bless them. God bless them. But their parents have bought them condos. Their parents have bought them apartments. And I'm like, <laughs> I
0: don't know. But, how the fuck? Bought? How the fuck? Bought? Like, purchased? Like, not paying?
1: Purchased. purchased.
0: Mm-hmm. My parents didn't own a home until I was a senior in college, they were renting. For my entire life, and not well. It didn't go well either. <laughs> That's wild to me.
1: Yeah, they're like it just seemed like a better investment. We'd be we would be here for a lot of years, so
0: just spot it. Just oh, it. that reminds me. Um, when I was in New York over summer, I went to a bar by NYU, and I overheard this conversation between like four guys at NYU, and you guys were like clowning on the other for the girl he was talking to saying like she was kind of like a stuck-up privileged girl and this guy was like nah, she pays for everything herself. Her parents only pay for her tuition and rent. <laughs> I was... They only pay 100k a year. I had to turn away from them because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> they only pay for her tuition and her Manhattan. Oh, wow. Oh,
2: oh wow. the Bronx, Manhattan.
0: <laughs> of course, NYU students wouldn't live in the Bronx. Oh, my God. Oh, my good God. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a lot of that. Like a lot of people their view on supporting themselves and their financial status is so skewed based on their life and who they hang around that they Mm -hmm. they genuinely think that they're poor and they're doing it themselves yeah
1: yeah um kind of with that nyu story i thought it was going to go in a different direction i thought it was going to go in a in a stereotypical direction but like what are the stereotypes that you guys perceive in law school maybe before and big law like before and then after like because we've both kind of experienced it I've experienced it on a low level you have like big time so what are some big
0: law stereotypes oh, oh boy. Was, I think big law the if we're gonna go like the partner track Netflix series
2: <laughs> I don't like that show so
0: much <laughs> so bad it was really really bad Maybe we should do an episode Uh, on it.
2: As an Asian American, that that is not the kind of representation (laughs) that I want in
0: Hollywood. (laughs) Um, okay. So it's very elite, prestigious, white male dominated, Mm -hmm. lots of money, corporate work, high stress. Partners are mean to associates, associates are mean to paralegals. All about like money and power and elitism
1: yeah billables are crazy work-life balance sucks um you have to serve on a board of everything you don't have family time but somehow everybody has like a third wife
0: yeah is that does that match the stereotypes you've kind of gotten really
2: yeah i think for me like the only kind of reason why I kind of like I'm hesitant to go to big law is like the ethical problems behind big law like I don't want to like to support a big oil company and work on energy projects in that lens like I'll help like zoning problems and stuff but I, I don't know I feel like with my field and my interests big law seems like very anti to what I stand for morally and I feel like that's something I have to grapple with and maybe getting my toes kind of and different parts of the law so like maybe I can look into other fields that are not as morally corrupt as big law environmental stuff
0: yeah I think that's definitely that's definitely an aspect of it that all of the work is just evil which I fully believed um and I think after working in it I can't I'm not going to go into detail with the kinds of people that my firm represents but there's, like, work that my firm does that I, like, genuinely stand behind morally, which isn't something I necessarily expected. Now, there's also work that I've told them I will never do because of my moral objections to it, but they're fine with me having moral objections to certain work.
1: That makes sense. Honestly, I think I had a better experience than I was expecting Um, as far as, like, the attorneys that work there. I... I really thought like the work culture and environment was really good, but that also is a product of it being like a regional big law firm and not, I mean, technically it's national, but whatever, they're mostly regional and, um, they represent like a lot of mom and pop companies and like closed corporations and things like that. Like they kind of have a split in their corporate team. Like one side does like the bigger corporations and the other side does like more closed corporations and like family businesses. And that was really cool. And you can kind of like pick a side or you can specialize a little bit in something else. Because I, I came in leaning towards doing transactional anyways. Like I wasn't really like looking at the litigation team, even though I did really like those attorneys. But the work-life balance seemed like all right. Obviously, there's the people who show up at like 6.30 and are there till 5.30. And even later, like a deal comes in and like you're you know, freaking out and you're in the office until, you know, 1am or whatever. And like those things happen. But I think once you are kind of like into your career, they get a bit more cyclical, but that also really depends on like what team you're on. So you can't really say like, oh, this firm has a really good work-life balance if you don't know like which team that person is on, because that can change like your work experience completely.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I think something that we found out while we were working was like you in a lot of places, they have like their big corporate team and they have their big litigation team. So like we had like corporate like C core, S core, and then like all that kind of stuff. And then we also had securities. But then we had the litigation who were like um, labor and employment litigators, white collar crime litigators and like all these mini like litigation teams. And so they're all kind of doing like different things, working with like different specialty groups. And especially if a deal comes in, like they probably have to pull IP people in, depending on the company, they have to pull in tax people. And so those like smaller teams are the ones that in general may have a better work-life balance because they're getting pulled on. They're not like the lead on things. Um, So that was kind of interesting, especially talking because I talked to a lot of the people on the specialty teams because I... I'm a tax girlie so I was like always with the tax team and then I also really like the IP team so I talked to them a lot and like they all have families and they do stuff and they work from home and everybody's hybrid and like they they know all of the big teams and like all the people on the big teams but they're just kind of like coming in to consult and do like little parts not necessarily like having to deal with the the big influxes in work and stuff like that they're just kind of like they have pretty steady work.
0: I think generally I was surprised at how much it felt like people did have a work life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the picture I got that you're never really on vacation like people are going to be hounding you on vacation. And yeah. that's not what I saw.
1: I agree. Uh, There were a few attorneys who did go on vacation during the course of the summer. One was gone for, I think like nine or 10 days. She did not do any work. Like, I think she, she told me she received like one or two emails like over the course of her vacation and none of them were like pressing issues. So she literally didn't do anything for the nine days that she was on vacation, just like living her life. And sometimes that's not the case. The example that we kept getting was like, if you're on a certain team, like you are probably always going to be working Thanksgiving because that's just like a really big time for this team's work. Like things just pop off around Thanksgiving, I guess. So they're like, if you come onto this team, you just kind of need to be prepared. Like Thanksgiving is not really going to be family time. Like you're going to be bringing your laptop, like to the dinner table, eating your turkey leg, like sending emails.
0: Yeah. I definitely got that sense too, where there were just times where you were going to have to work. Um, And then of course, if there is like a dire situation, you're going to get emailed on vacation, but it wasn't, it definitely wasn't the norm. Right.
1: I think something that all of us can kind of relate to in different ways is like the economic pressure to do something that brings you a lot of money, especially something like big law. So maybe if we all like want to talk about that a little bit, like why, why we feel that economic pressure, I guess. Roly, if you want to start.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, I just yes, yeah, so yeah. I am also like a low income student, so like I went to law school knowing that the fact that I have to take up like a lot of loans to afford my education, and I think also just going beyond like I kind of went to a school that offered me better scholarship, but because of the pressures in the legal industry. Regarding school rankings, I chose to go to a school that offered me a lasting scholarship, but had a higher ranking. And sure, like, I had a job after right. graduation. And right. I feel like that's also something we need to talk about when it comes to law school in general. It's just like most of us when I was, went to school because they had a good ranking. And so say it out loud. Um, <laughs> so there's that, too. And with big law, the fact that you're making thirty to $40,000 a summer, a summer, that's a big push or or pull for anyone in my situation like i would love that money to like take out less loans and i don't know treat myself (laughs) and i think that's where a lot of like the um the luxurious kind of content in law talk kind of started as well too so it's hard to avoid that in tiktok especially
1: yeah i would agree i think especially this summer because the videos that TikTok was pushing was literally all of us who were doing big loss stuff. And I was talking about like, oh, we're going to these networking events and there's all this drinking and this is the kind of work that we're doing, which we obviously had to be very vague about. I like barely talked about that stuff because I was not trying to get in trouble. <laughs> but I think like that's really what I was seeing on my For You page. But I also agree um, with the economic pressures and things like that because I know like with the position that I am in my family, like I am most likely going to be like the child that has to support my parents. Cause my brother, like he dropped out of community college and he works in a factory. It's so, like, he is not making enough money to like support my parents when they're too old. And I, my sister, I don't even know what she wants to do. And my little brother, maybe we've always joked in our family that like me and my little brother are gonna be like the economic supporters of the family and so i knew coming into school that in some way i would have to be making enough money where i had extra money because my dad isn't just like taking care of us like he also takes care of his parents and his siblings like cuz my dad's from morocco and then all his immediate family moved to france so like all my aunts and uncles and my cousins and my grandparents live in france but my dad supports a lot of them and like helped his siblings go to school and stuff So I'm like, that's going to be me (laughs) next. So I have to like mentally prepare to be like the sibling that takes on like what he's done essentially. And that's been a lot of pressure.
2: Yeah, also like in the ironic sense, like there's stability in big law because you can like be offered a return offer. Like what happened to Brianne here? She got a return offer. And I feel like in my culture at least, like we want to be able to get rid of our loans as quickly as possible. And so like to start supporting your parents like and have like, I don't know, I'm, I consider myself to be my parents' retirement plan. So, like, I want to be able to support <laughs> my parents, like, as soon as possible. Um. So that's also, like, a pressure that's kind of, like, somewhat cultural, but also tied to economic pressure.
0: Yeah. I think it's so interesting that you talked about this pressure to go to the highest ranked School and how it drives people to take out even more loans, because I did what you're supposed to do to get out of law school with as little debt as possible. I did not go to the highest ranked school I got into. I chose not to go to like a T-14 that would be incredibly expensive. I went to a school with in-state tuition. I got a very large scholarship. And I still feel all of that pressure to go into big law. Because even with all of that stuff, I mean I'm still using loans to pay for my cost of living for my health insurance for you know the summer where I was working public interest there's still so many loans you're taking out and believe me I don't even have I don't even have half of the average loans that a law student takes out yeah but the pressure is insane um maybe lucky maybe not <laughs> I have eight siblings so I'm not like the only person that financial pressure is going to be on, but it's like, you're the only one that's going to law school. You're mm-hmm. the only one that has the potential to make this much money. So then there's that pressure of like, you need to be taking advantage of, you know, the, the things that are, you're capable of doing and, and the jobs you're capable of having, um, especially because my parents are retirement age right now and they're both still working. And I think that really gets to me. I think especially when your parents get older and they start having health problems, you feel that pressure so much more than when you were like twenty twenty one applying to law schools.
1: I would agree. I also agree with the, like not going to the highest ranked school that you got into because I did not, like, I, I applied in, like, a pretty broad range, and got most, most of the schools I applied to, I got accepted into, and if not accepted, I got waitlisted, too, and so the highest-ranked school that I got into didn't give me nearly as much money as, like, three other schools who were lower ranked, and there were a lot of, like, more personal factors into, like, why I chose the school that I ended up going to, but because of the opportunity that I had through my school, I have a full ride and I got that job through my scholarship. So like I'm set in those aspects. And luckily I did work. So I have like a bit of money saved, but even during one L, I I had to start taking out loans, like almost immediately. I was like, this shit costs way more than like where I lived before. So I like moved from like a small college town to like a major city in the state. So it's like, everything is completely different. Everything is more expensive. Like <laughs> everything is just more expensive.
0: Hmm. I also think there's this aspect of it where if you did grow up low income, there is, and I hate how social media uses this word lately, but I think there is trauma attached to growing up in poverty, growing up very low income that makes people just like crave stability. And going into public interest is so unstable just in terms of like your 3L year to starting the job because a lot of them, especially public defender's offices, won't even hire you until you've passed the bar. So you're taking this huge risk not having a stable job. You essentially go a full year where everyone else knows where they're going to be working and you don't.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that goes into like the discussion about about the timeline of big law, because yeah. you, you can get into it right away, you know, like one LOCI. So maybe January, February, you get your offer for 1L summer, you do your 1L summer, hopefully you get asked back, or if you do something else, then you're trying to get into 2L OCIs. So either you get asked back, or you're doing 2L OCIs, you do 2L OCIs, August, timing like end of July, August, Mm -hmm. or a little bit later, I think for like the people who are on quarter system or something. So it's like end of the summer, beginning of school year. And then you have your two all job. And then once you're at the end of your two all job, you're like, okay, I'm gonna get this this return offer for post grad. And then all those people know where they're going. And everybody else most likely does not. Maybe some of the mid-sized firm people, I know a few of those who like got their offers back and stuff. But a lot of the people who did like governmental work or things like that are just like scrambling
0: yeah because you don't there's no there's no such thing as a return offer in public interest work you they say thank you for your service we didn't pay you apply again in a year can we talk a bit more about the pressure to do big law from social media
2: oh my god yeah um i don't know i just feel like with public interest I don't really see a lot of it in tiktok so i don't know what the day-to-day life of a public defender looks like um so i feel like with things that i see as one on tiktok and instagram i see people who take big law as like the only option that people like glorify it in some aspect like hey I have this standing table <laughs> I have my daily latte so th- these are the things I that have I have my on treadmill a under my exactly yeah I'm <laughs> had this treadmill like no shade to like the creator <laughs> who like is on a treadmill while, like she's doing her work I'm like oh so yeah I feel like I want to see more diversity in content on TikTok as a one-all like I feel like the big law is the only thing you see so there's a lot of pressure to go into that field because that's the only field of law that you know
1: yeah I would agree I think it's hard because there would be like small firms or like medium-sized firms that have tiktoks but they're making like jokey joke tiktoks it's not like somebody's personal account yeah person. like this is you know the firm that I work at we have like five partners we're doing xyz work whatever like I don't see a lot of that and I think that like personal like this is what I do in a day or like these are the kind of motions that I'm filing or like this is my caseload or whatever I don't see that type of stuff
2: yeah and or like I see content that's like here's some legal jargon that I use at my work I'm like I'm not here to go to class I'm here <laughs> to scroll through videos that entertain me
0: yeah the thing is oh, this is so frustrating to me because there are a lot of public defenders on TikTok but I had to like seek them out really hard because the algorithm does not push it. Yeah. Um, I can even like the difference in engagement between me making my public defense intern content and my big law intern content completely different. Um,
2: and yeah, the- I feel like when I first joined um, Law Talks, I got into my first law school in February so I made a a video about me getting in and then after like a week or so of scrolling I just kind of like stuck I was stuck in law talk and the first content I saw was mostly corporate law and because it was about the time where people were getting ready for their big law jobs, so I felt like it just became natural at that point and I think I just got stuck in that big law kind of TikTok ever since.
0: And I think the I think the algorithm's really designed to get you stuck into it. It's something that we talked about in our first episode that the algorithm pushes elitism and capitalism. And that's just so tied to big law that creators that aren't in it, unless you're, you know, you're l wood solo practitioner, look at all of my pink heels, or your Alex. What is his? at what is his lol
1: overruled
0: yes (laughs) yes i can never remember it because he in my mind is just lolo why i want to know how that started um where he is a public defender but i will not consider him part of law talk like
1: he i feel like he talks about like the legal world but like news type shit you know like he's not necessarily like talking about like what we're all going through or like what he's going through I feel like it's more like bigger movement type shit that he talks about
0: so I don't think I mean love him he's fantastic but I think that's a very different thing than what the law talk algorithm algorithm specifically is pushing
1: yeah I agree I think there's like there's just a big hole in law talk like from what I see and I mean like I I follow like a lot of people and I follow like a lot of smaller creators back and so like a lot of I don't know where a lot of people are going to end up or like what they really want to do but I'm like hoping I'm like hoping the one class will like come out with some good shit for the summer.
2: Is that, I don't think it's going to change that quickly like as we mentioned like there's all, all these isms in law mm-hmm. that's like we're all going to be pressured at one point to go into big law Um, I feel like that's just inevitable at this point like this is a lot of cultural and economic benefits into like big law that I think it's a cycle that will keep going.
0: Is there anything else we need to talk about in the big law pipeline?
2: I don't think so.
1: I feel like we covered a lot.
0: I do think that we could probably talk about this for several more hours, but as an introduction, I think we hit the high points we hit you know how the schedule affects it how peer pressure on social media and in school affects it financial pressures yeah the whole lot of
2: things
1: a lot of things i feel like we could do some minisodes some spin-offs
2: on tiktok <laughs>
0: well thanks for listening to this episode i hope none of this scared anyone too much and join us next week for our episode where we will be talking about the intersection of law school and disability.
1: Thank you to our special guest
0: Roe.
2: Thank you, for, Thank you. Guys for having me. This was so much fun.
0: I'm glad. Everyone make sure to follow him. Remember, information will be Hi. in the description box.
1: Yes, And also make sure to follow us on Instagram at the in-laws Pod and like this podcast and follow it